0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The last two weeks of our study, and the first week uh, and second week, just laying a foundation for first, what is pneumatology, in the first lesson, why are we studying the Holy Spirit and the various ways we go about doing that so that we are accurate, and then also last week, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And uh, so as we learn from Scripture, all of Scripture is filled and overflowing with the work of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament overview last week proved in three distinct ways where he worked in such a way to effect his sovereign will as decreed by the Father and spoken by the Son. The spirit's role in the forming and filling of the natural creation as he hovered over that inchoate mass, the dark, formless and unfilled planet to a state of light, form and abundant life. We call him at this point the cosmic spirit, and we learned last week the Greek word "cosmos," meaning order that the Holy Spirit brings order from disorder. We also saw the Spirit's work in the theocracy of Israel. This God-ruled people were made a covenant, beginning with Abraham and continued with Isaac and Jacob and forever, that God would never leave them nor forsake them. We saw how the Spirit provided these supernatural abilities to the judges to rescue the people when they fell into their cycles of sin, We learned about Othniel, Gideon, Deborah, Samson, supernaturally gifted with strength, leadership, ability, wisdom to manifest the saving ability of God alone. Uh, One of those being Gideon especially, we talked about how he was hesitant to follow the command of the Lord, and then the Lord took away 95% of his military to a state of 300 men instead of 22,000, and uh, just showing that it was God alone who would win the battle. Now, these judges were not worshipped as gods, but pointed the people to worshipping and magnifying the one true God. They recognized the giftedness of these judges, but they were not praised. They directed their praise to God. We also read about the artisans of the Old Testament, specifically Belezel and his right hand man a holy ab, and all of the craftsmen that God empowered to craft the elements of tabernacle worship and God had very specific plans for that so that his name would be worshipped properly. And the kings we learned that were anointed, they were clothed with the Spirit of God to lead God's people. And we talked about how that was not regeneration, because we read that the Spirit departed from Saul This was a giftedness uh, of empowerment so that these men could rule God's people. And although it was not recommended, we know that Samuel told the people, you don't need a king, we have God as king. Uh, But even though the people went the way of the world and wanting another king, God still, by his sovereign grace, gave to the people leaders that were gifted with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We know David was different than Saul. David was regenerate. When he sinned, he had a penitent heart. Uh, So again, the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament in empowering these kings was not for the sake of regeneration. It was for the sake of the people primarily, Um, although we know David was, in fact, a believer. Now, the prophets we also learned about, given direct revelation by the Spirit of God to instruct the people to reprimand them, warn them, and communicate coming judgment. And we read about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and how sorry the people were as far as their state. It was a sorry state of affairs because they were sinning before the eyes of God, and there was a coming judgment. So all of these events that occurred, nations that rose and fell, All the prophecies were pointing Israel and believers to the coming of Jesus. So, secondly, we learned of the theocratic spirit last week. And finally, we briefly visited, because of time, the individual spirit. Individual in that he is the sole effective work of regeneration in the hearts of his children. And we will learn again today, in part how that works in this giving of the new heart, this individual spirit, and how the Old Testament promises carry through into the New Testament, um, both sides of the coin looking to Christ. The Old Testament was looking forward, and we look back. um, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. They hadn't seen Christ. We haven't physically, with our eyes, sensually perceived him. But we have faith. For by it, the men of old gained approval. And then we know in Hebrews 11, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, all of these men, not saved by works, but by their faith, given by the Spirit of God. Now, this faith is only made sure... By the coming of the Savior. So, if these people of the Old Testament were looking forward to Christ, but he never came, then they would have no hope. And even if he did come, and he didn't live a perfect, sinless life, their hope would be dashed. And if Christ came and lived a sinless life and did not raise from the dead, again, their faith would be futile. As we read in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. That is a hopeless existence. But we don't live in a hopeless existence, thankfully. In 1 Corinthians 15, he continues, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if he had not been raised from the dead. So the full work of Christ is essential to the salvation of those to the Old Testament as much as to the New. This work of Jesus on earth is the only way of salvation or saving for all people. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That said, Jesus did this perfect work in the will of the Father, as Jesus says in John 10.37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Jesus also did these works in the power of the Spirit. Now this is not to say that Jesus, who existed before coming to earth in the manger, lacked anything in his person. He possessed all within his divine nature. He has always been the eternal fullness in respect to his divinity. But the human nature of Christ, which is the assuming of this body of flesh, the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' human nature for his earthly mission. In Luke 4.14, it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And in Acts 10.38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So as we go through this lesson, may we pray for understanding. Me, probably more than anyone, because I was talking to someone this morning and I just said we're all in the same situation. I have not studied these things before this time just like you, uh, in depth, as we have, um, looking at the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Christ. But he is there. So let us pray for this understanding this morning, and also that in the end we may glorify Christ, our Savior, in a rich and full way. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for our morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which is our guide we thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding as we read and study and share. Lord. we thank you for everyone gathered this morning here uh, that they would get that you would give them a desire to love you and also uh, know you and we pray Lord, for a fullness of mind and also Lord, those who were not able to be with us this morning that you would uh, impart to them comfort and also Um, health, if that would be their need, to return to this body. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, I've been really wanting to talk about this title since the beginning lesson, the paraclete. And the paraclete is this uh, amazing name or title given that we read about in Scripture uh, in the original text. And the Greek word parakletos Translates in various uh, Bible translations to a helper, a comforter, an advocate. So it depends on if you're in the ESV or the NASB, you're, gonna, you're going to see helper, an advocate. In the King James, you'll see comforter. Paracletos, or the English paraclete, is made up of para, which means alongside, and the Greek verb kaleo, which means to call. So an easy remembrance for us is that the paraclete is one that is called alongside, and that's in your notes there, so you won't forget that. One who helps, one who comforts, one who advocates alongside another. So in John sixteen seven, the word paraclete is translated as comforter in the King James and helper in the NASB and ESV translations. Now, this original term, comforter, is coined from the Latin words cum and forte, meaning with strength. Although we at once, you know, we're prone to our own context of our own day of what a comforter is, sentimentalizing this translation, one who gently consoles, one who is hurt or in pain. Well, the original intent of the translators was that this one called alongside us is one who would give strength to strengthen the one in need. He is to be an empowering promise, one who can uphold against the strongest onslaught of Satan. Yes, this knowledge is a consolation. It does indeed give comfort. It gives us a quiet peace, but it is because he is strong and will deliver those in need of assistance. Now, the classical usage of parakletos is that of an advocate. An advocate was used in legal proceedings. It is not like our court's today. In Deuteronomy 17, 6, we see the basis for this. He says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. I was talking about the death penalty, but it is still the way that they would arrive at truth to see if one is innocent or guilty. There were no professionally trained lawyers or prosecutors, The most important person able to vindicate another was the eyewitness. Someone who would speak the truth with authority. The Spirit is the chief witness who is trustworthy, who knew Christ from eternity past. That is why the prophets of the Old Testament were so precise with their prophecies of how the Lord would come and who he was, what he would do. The apostles in the New Testament also affirmed the spirit bearing witness with their own witness. They were eyewitnesses of the Christ and would speak on his behalf in a similar way. So, paraclete can mean a legal advocate who bears witness on behalf of another. Helper, and this is where our title comes in for our series, is also a proper translation and some would say the most far-reaching in that the Holy Spirit is the supreme aid to our human nature to the point that he does strengthen, comforte. He does advocate for us. He is the one who also is instrumental in the life of our Savior. When we speak of the operations of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we're never pitting one against the other. They do all in one mind and one will, though the function of each of the persons varies. So we can see, as we will this morning, that the Father was not incarnate. Neither was the Spirit incarnate, but only the Son The role and function of the Holy Spirit, then, in the life of Jesus reveals the immense impact the work of the Holy Spirit had in the incarnation of the Son of God and throughout Christ's ministry to the end with Christ's death and his resurrection. Abraham Kuyper, the renowned theologian, a B.B. Warfield contemporary, states that the church has never sufficiently confessed the influence of the Holy Spirit exerted upon the work of Christ. There are a great many examples of great and weighty works that were wrought by the Spirit in the life of Jesus. So we will look first at Christ's incarnation. And Jesus is said to be God incarnate, in the Flesh, the carne, in human form of a human nature. Now, a quick question. Has Christ always been in human form? The answer, of course, is no. He came to earth, he assumed. John Owen, uh, in his work of the Holy Spirit, um, the treatment of the work of the Holy Spirit says, over and over again, this word assumption, assuming, possessing. Christ possessed or assumed this body. Now, that being said, is Christ still in the flesh? He is. He is. We know that from his resurrection. We saw him in his glorified body. He is the firstborn of many brethren, so we know that his body then was eternal. We'll get to that later, but Jesus, as we have already learned, is the eternal Son. He is not the created Son. The Son of God before the incarnation was without human form, without flesh. But Jesus existed before Mary conceived in her womb. His person was not created because of this conception. That said, Jesus did assume a human form at a specific moment in history and at the specific location on earth, a small village of Nazareth. The human nature or bodily constitution of Jesus was created by the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us specifically that this was an operation of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 1, 18 and 20, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, as we read in Scripture. And in verse 20, the angel tells Joseph that the child conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 1, 35, the angel Gabriel tells Mary The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. The conception, then, of Christ's human nature, the forming of the physical man, was the work of the Holy Spirit. John Owen writes that the only immediate act of the Son— On the human nature, meaning the forming of the physical, was the assumption or the taking on of into subsistence with himself. It became him. Jesus, speaking in Hebrews 10.5, says, this is Jesus speaking here in Hebrews 10.5, says, a body you have prepared for me. The created body of Christ was the special work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this creative act was not like the original creation, like we learned about with the cosmic spirit last week, which was ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Very good. I'm glad we have some return learners here and some great memories So, it's not that kind of creation. Mary physically was used by the effecting act of the Spirit's power. It was necessary that Jesus be born of a woman who had a human nature, or flesh. We read in Scripture that Christ was to be born of the seed of Abraham. In Hebrews 2.16, "...so that he would share in flesh and blood." to give help to the descendants of Abraham, and that the whole world through him might be blessed. So Christ's assumption, or his possession of this human nature, was necessary to make effective his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the people. Not of angels. Not for Other created beings. He did not take on the form of angels to have imputed to them salvation. This was an exclusive atonement for the human race, specifically those that would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, being born of the flesh, did Jesus also assume our fallen nature? Because even David said, I was conceived in sin. Well, given that Jesus' body was conceived by the Holy Spirit, pure and exact as it was, there was no disposition or tendency in his flesh to the least deviation from perfect holiness in any kind. The sin of Adam... Could not be found in Jesus because the human nature of Christ was formed by the Holy Spirit. Not by means of natural generation, which is fallen man and fallen woman, as all of us come to be. But being conceived by the Holy Spirit means that the sin of Adam could not be imputed or laid at the feet of Christ. Yes, Jesus took our sin... As mediator on the cross, but on his own account, he was free of that original sin. So Christ was not only absolutely innocent, spotless, and free from sin, so it wasn't just the absence of the fallenness, but there was something added. And we'll see the same thing whenever in the coming weeks when we talk about the regenerating power of the Spirit. It's not just that he convicts us of sin and draws us to Christ where this elimination of sin occurs but there is an endowment there is an empowerment of grace a sanctifying work so it's not just a negative but there's also the positive Christ was not created in the neutral but was created in the godword natural man which is us, inherits an inclination to sin in ourselves, whereas Christ was inclined then to righteousness and to pleasing God. As Owen states, John Owen, the soul of Christ from the first moment of its infusion was a subject capable of a fullness of grace, as unto its habitual residence and in-being or being in the flesh, though the actual exercise of it was suspended for a while, meaning his divinity, until the organs of his body were fitted for it. His mind developed, as we're getting ready to learn. Um, his body grew, but there he was also positively endowed with all grace. Hence, from his conception, he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. In Hebrews 7.26 I believe I have that in your handout. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. It may not be in your handout, I apologize, but that is Hebrews 7, 26, for those of you taking notes. Hebrews 7, 26. So the union of human nature and the divine nature and the person of Christ— is known as the hypostatic union. The church historical uh, councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon both affirmed that this hypostatic union was without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. It wasn't like the flesh was battling against Christ the Spirit. He was the whole man, perfect and blameless. The hypostatic union is distinct then from the virgin birth and the incarnation because these were temporal. The virgin birth happened and it was not a state of eternality. The incarnation as we know this coming in the flesh growing within the womb of Mary these were temporal but the hypostatic union is recognized as eternal and this then warrants the term theanthropic person, theos and anthropo, which is the God-man. And that's why he was truly God and truly man. So now we're moving into Christ's growth in stature and wisdom. As time passed and Jesus progressed in his human growth, he grew in physical form and, the Bible tells us, in wisdom— Luke 2.40 tells us the child continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, we would expect the humanity of Christ to grow physically as he aged, but the increasing in wisdom may be something we don't think about. Being truly God, is he not the fullness of all wisdom? And is he not completely powerful, omnipotence, omniscient? Is he everywhere at one time still in the flesh? Well, being the God incarnate, one who would assume all wisdom, was already present in the mind of Christ. Regarding his divinity, yes. Regarding his humanity in the development of his mind, there was a progression increasing in wisdom, as the Bible tells us. There was a growth of mind and understanding. This increase of wisdom was the result of the grace of God upon him. Well, what is this grace of God regarding Christ? It is this constant effective help of the Holy Spirit giving strength to the Son in his human nature. Now, whenever we are regenerate and we have been saved by God's grace, we have an inclination to pleasing God. Christ had this from his conception. The Holy Spirit conceived this body. Christ assumed this body from his, the beginning of his human nature, which eliminated the fallenness, as we, we've discussed. And this is hard for us to understand. It's hard for me to understand. But it was this effective help of the Spirit. This human nature, including the brain, was in a development process, just as the common man, but yet with divine assistance. In John 3, 34, it says that the Father gave Christ the Spirit without measure. Christ exhibited divine giftedness as when he was listening and asking questions in the temple when he was 12 years old, astonishing all who heard him. This desire to be about his father's business was consciously known at such an early age, why? By the empowerment of the wisdom given by the Spirit. Now concerning this event at age 12, John Piper, we know him, Writes, the fact that this incident happened when Jesus was 12 is probably significant. The 12th year was the final year of preparation for a lad before he entered into full participation in the religious life of the synagogue. Up until that time, his parents, especially his father, were teaching him the commandments of the law. But at the end of the 12th year, the child goes through the ceremony by which he formally takes upon himself the yoke of the law and becomes a bar mitzvah. Now, you've probably heard that phrase. Bar mitzvah, which means the son of the commandment. This was the year Jesus chose to stay behind in the temple, perhaps at this crucial turning point in every Jewish boy's life. Jesus wanted to demonstrate subtly for those who had eyes to see that he would be more than an ordinary Jewish bar mitzvah, or son of the commandment. His insight into the commandment was more profound than the ordinary men. And his relation to God was unique, which is why these leaders and all of the people, the Bible says, in the temple were amazed and astonished. In Hebrews 5.8, Christ learned obedience From the things which he suffered. So again, although the divinity of Jesus could never be added to, just so we're clear on that, the Holy Spirit was not supplying in Christ this lack of uh, perfection in his divinity, but he was supporting that side of him or that newness of him, the human flesh. And we know the term emptying himself. Now, there are different theologians that take a different view of this. The emptying of oneself is known as kenosis, and people have varying viewpoints on that. Uh, MacArthur would say he emptied himself of his glory. It was veiled behind his flesh. He emptied himself of his honor. He was not seated at the right hand of the Father, but yet retained all the fullness of his divinity that he was not emptied of things like omniscience or his all-knowing. Sinclair Ferguson writes, "'Jesus' intimate acquaintance with Scripture did not come de callo, or from heaven, during the period of his public ministry. It was grounded, no doubt, on his early education, but nourished by long years of personal meditation.'" Ferguson continues, he says, Later in his public ministry, it becomes evident that he was intimately familiar with its contents and also possessed in his human nature a knowledge of God by the Spirit, which lent freshness, authority, and a sense of reality to his teaching. That's Sinclair Ferguson. John Piper writes, again, One of the things Christ emptied himself of in the flesh was omniscience. So this goes against what John MacArthur would say. He said concerning the time of his return of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Also, again, he increased in wisdom. So... There's, there's a richness in this, and we could get lost in mystery, but let's not get lost in the mystery. The omniscience, the all-powerful Christ, his divinity was never lost. It was veiled. It was not exercised. It was present. A good analogy would be the, the strong man. We see strong men, the world's strongest man who's holding a butterfly. He could crush the butterfly, but he loves the butterfly. He's not going to do that. Uh, We know that because when Christ was on the cross, he said, I could call down legions of angels to rescue me. He could have destroyed the earth at that moment for putting their hands on the Holy One, but he did not. So, we also take for granted that, of course, a boy, of course, will grow physically. To become strong implies that there is a gaining of strength. Would not the king of the universe, being omnipotent, need to grow in strength? So we see the humanness. Being in the union of God in the flesh, he took on our infirmities, being finite, in the flesh, he was exhausted, Bible tells us. He did indeed sleep. He hungered. He thirsted. And that I I know is in your notes, so you can look up those scripture passages. So let us remember that his divinity in the flesh then was simply veiled. If he walked among men, manifesting his full power at all times, the people would all the time react as Peter did. If you remember when he let down his nets and they pulled up that large catch of fish and Peter said, what? Depart from me. I am a sinful man. As Christ walked down these aisles in his flesh, the people would fall on their knees. Or whenever he healed the two men of the demon possession, the men of the Gadarenes, And the people gathered together and they said, depart from us, leave our town. These are but glimpses of the true nature of the divine son, hidden for a time because he obeyed the will of the father to accomplish his earthly work. So now we come to the event that marked Jesus' entrance into public ministry, also referred to as his messianic ministry or even priestly ministry, Jesus, we're skipping ahead to his age of 30, which is what the Bible does as well. We don't get a whole lot of his um, uh, roaring 20s. No, they wouldn't have been that roaring, would they? But the 20s were not um, specifically mentioned in his development, other than he continued to grow in strength and wisdom. So now that he's 30 years old, he comes to the Jordan River, and it says in Matthew three thirteen. then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way, I love how he says that, permit it at this time. Meaning, I know you're right, you don't really have the right to even unlatch my sandal, but permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, meaning John Baptist conceded, even though he felt unworthy, because he was. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well and that, of course, is a beautiful scene, but also a, an apologetic source for the Trinity, because we see all three persons present at one time. So, why would the Spirit, who has been full within Christ from conception, need to come down and rest upon Christ, descending from the heaven? What was this purpose? It was a public announcement at the Jordan, proclaiming the arrival of the one foretold, which at the age of 30, the age of the priestly service, and we know that Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is our mediator as priest. And this was his anointing, his consecration by the Spirit himself, signifying this threefold messianic office foretold Prophet speaking the word of God, priest, our mediator, and king, our sovereign Lord. This event begins a new chapter of ministry for Jesus in the public arena as the people were seeing him with the Spirit alighting upon him in bodily form, as another scripture says. The baptism of Jesus and the anointing of the Spirit was a fulfillment of Isaiah 61 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me. After Christ's baptism and being full of the Spirit in Luke 4 1, he was then led by the Spirit, and the context of that is impressive of mine. It wasn't like the Spirit drug Jesus into the wilderness by force. Christ went, because of this, knowing that he needed to, into the wilderness, being full of the Spirit and was tempted for 40 days. By the Spirit's empowerment, he did not eat for 40 days, Scripture tells us. It's very similar to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is supernatural. Man cannot go without food for 40 days on his own. And we also read that the angels ministered to Christ in the wilderness. In that fullness of the Spirit... Christ overcame the tempter by the power of the word, a lesson for us practically for today. If you are not in scripture and you are not studying the word of God and you are complaining that either you don't know the will of God or that there is this continual defeat in your life and Satan's overcoming you at every turn, are you in the word? Christ was, and he found victory. So let us be in the word. The Spirit then continued to empower Christ in the performing of many miracles. We see miracles of healing. Peter's mother-in-law, the deaf and mute man at Decapolis, uh, the man who was blind from birth, the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda, whom he healed on the Sabbath, which caused an uproar, The blind man Bartimaeus in Jericho, the centurion's servant, and by the way, I love the story of the centurion who by faith saw his servant healed. Christ even took a step back and he said, I've not seen a man with faith like this. And it was pleasing to the Lord. He also performed miracles of nature, turning the water to wine, calming the wind and the waves, peace, be still, and also feeding 5,000 people with the five loaves of bread and the two fish. All of these miracles were done by the word of Jesus in the effective power of the Spirit. He was empowered here. So, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Now, he responds to the people because they're saying, you're doing this in the name of or in the power of the evil one. Jesus' responds in verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has indeed come upon you. So Christ is saying it is by the power of God and by his Spirit that these demons were cast out. And then he follows with a dire warning against rejecting that this power is of the Spirit. In verse 31, he says, "'Therefore I say to you, "'any sin and blasphemy shall be, given, shall be forgiven the people, "'but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. "'Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, "'it shall be forgiven him. "'But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit,' it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So Christ makes it abundantly clear that these works are by the power of the Spirit through him. And to say otherwise is to deny the power of God. So this power of working found in the original text is the Greek word dunamis. It is the root for our words dynamite or Dynamic. John Owen states, Hence these mighty works are called powers, because the power of the Spirit of God put forth for their working and effecting. And in the exercise of this power consisted the testimony given unto him by the Spirit that he was indeed the Son of God. For this was necessary unto the conviction of the Jews to whom he was sent. So we see his ministry to the point of his death and resurrection. In this, we read in Hebrews 9.14, Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. Ferguson again says, no further exposition is offered to us at this juncture to answer the questions which may arise in our mind, and speculation would be misplaced if we were going to talk about all of the inner workings of how the Spirit comforted Christ when he was being mocked and ridiculed, and how exactly he strengthened the body of Christ when all of the cat of nine tails and the beatings were occurring before the cross. But we know that the Spirit was with him. Only God could endure this great injustice at the hands of sinful men and not retaliate in the ways that we cannot even imagine. Christ fulfilled in obedience his perfect work in the power of the Spirit to do the will of the Father, even to the death on the cross, so that God's elect, his foreknown before the foundation of the world, may have their sins atoned. We see that God's actions then are never individual. We cannot ever talk about the Spirit without talking about Christ and the Father. And we can't talk about the Father because we know him through the Son and through the Holy Spirit all of their actions are united. So then the resurrection of Christ is attributed to each of the persons of the Godhead. In your notes, I have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and each of the persons of the Trinity are attributed for the resurrection. We see in Acts 2.32, God, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, speaking that the Father, by his power, raised Jesus. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifteen, um, because we testified against God that he raised Christ. So there's, we're talking about the will of the Father, his decree. We also see the Son. Christ said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it again in three days. John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Christ claiming this, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And then we read about in Romans eight eleven, but if the spirit of him, the spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we see not only the death and the resurrection of Christ, but a promise that we will also have a resurrected body. So never forget that this body that we are in, even though it's going to be glorified and not as it is, all of my freckles all over my person, I hope they're going to be done away with because they're just really (laughs) annoying to look at. I don't, I don't want to be a leopard in eternity, but you know what? I really don't care. So that's okay. But. That's right. That's right. Our hope is that the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ bodily as the firstborn of many brethren will also raise us from earthly corruption to heavenly perfection. And the Spirit then bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We know, we know if we know Christ. We know if we know that we are indwelt with the Spirit. Um, I'm out of time, but Uh, R.C. Sproul, in the beginning of three of his works on the Holy Spirit, starts with the same story. It's the conversion of his wife, who was an unbeliever when they were in college. They were both unbelievers when they started college. He was saved, and he realized that their relationship, his boyfriend and girlfriend, would only continue if she knew Christ. And so he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he reached a point where he said, if she's not a believer, by the time I have to go home for my next semester of college, uh, we cannot be together anymore. They went to a uh, prayer meeting, I believe it was, and at that time she was converted. And she said, now I know who the Holy Spirit is. And she had been raised in church. She had been confirmed in the, I think it was the Methodist church, but she was confirmed. But now she knew, so may we also know and be assured that we know Christ As our Savior. And we are out of time. So let us bow our heads in prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this assurance and this beautiful exposition of your word that we can rely on and trust what you have said. It is so clear. And so we pray, Lord, that as we hope in you, that you would continue to sanctify us as we live in this life, that we are pleasing to you. to be perfect even as Christ was perfect, although we know we sin. And Lord, may you forgive us when we do. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us now as we enter into our time of worship. And may your word again ring clear. And may we also respond in obedience. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.